We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Now, this poem is considered one of the most famous examples of romanticism in the English language and is frequently anthologized. I... I'm so confused. I need help. <laughs> and I've been looking forward to this talk all week because I'm like, well, Uno will explain it to me. He'll get it. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Uh, uh, let's let's start with here, okay? Because sometimes, you, you've, you've expressed this to me before, when you learn about the story behind the poem, when, when you get the context, the history where where was writing at this time and you infuse that into the work sometimes that actually makes it more enjoyable sometimes that makes it more interesting and i thought that this is one of those poems those pieces where when you learn a little bit more about the backstory it actually gets more and more interesting it it has to right because i feel like old sammy here gave me something that is an incoherent dream on the surface and you got to dig deep to understand this and I always say it <laughs> and I know you said I've gotten better but I struggle with poetry and I struggle with the not the purpose I understand the purpose is emotion but I struggle with my own emotion so for mm -hmm. something like this mm -hmm. that it, I feel like is so wrapped up in emotion mm. it just it, it breaks my brain well let's let's say this your, your favorite like era your, your favorite like way of expressing it, it's not romanticism right in terms of the emotions in terms of getting caught up and doing what feels good in terms of the uh, very <laughs> definitely not my love language. Yeah, yeah, definitely not your love language in terms of being the specifics. So, but I think it's important that it exists. I think for some people it attracts them, right? And it's okay for us to challenge ourselves for looking deeper and to continue to try to understand different modes of how humanity has expressed themselves through time. Of course, because that's how you're going to help connect with other people that that there is their love language or that is the way that they express or understand love or feelings or emotions so that can help you communicate better. And that's one of the great purposes of any type of literature, especially I feel like poems is communication. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the background here because this is this is amazing. So it's well, so here's the story and let's double click past this, right? So, so the surface level story is that, you know, he tells us that, oh, I was doing some anodynes, some opium. Okay. I was a prescribed drug, if you will. I was reading purchases, his pilgrimages or whatever. And basically I fell asleep, right? And I fell asleep right at this line where it's talking about how Kubla Khan you know, he's building, you know, his Xanadu, his, his, his perfect city, if you will. He wakes up. He's like, oh my gosh, that dream was amazing. He tries to write some of it down. He's interrupted. And oh, I can't remember the whole thing anywhere and the, anymore. So it's kind of like an incomplete poem. And, and he didn't even publish it 
right away. Like it, it was like decades later that he actually was kind of elbowed into finally publishing it. So that's the surface level story that I think most people hear when it comes to how this story is presented. Right. Okay. And do you think that that is unfair to us as readers? Because I know that I've had a dream before and I, I don't know if I do it on purpose, but I feel like my imagination may fill in some of the gray areas so mm. that my dream sounds more coherent when I tell my wife or I tell you or, you know, my friend, you know, my sister or something. And I'll be like, oh, I had this crazy dream, blah, 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 blah. And a couple of those blah, blah, blahs aren't really from the dream, but just my imagination trying to make it a little bit more coherent so they can follow it. Oh, 100%. That's a that's a well-known psychological element, right? And that ha that's even taken into consideration with pol police procedure. When a crime occurs, well, okay, you could have one witness, but if you've got two, three, four, five witnesses, you need to talk to all of them because that's when you start to see the cracks in the stories. One person thought the, the murderer had orange hair, but these four said, no, 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 he was blonde, right? So you have more evidence that, oh, okay, actually it was blonde. But then this guy over here actually agrees with half of these people over here that, you know, he was six feet tall, while two of these people say, no, 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 he was real short. He was like four foot 11. You start to realize that people don't have the full idea of a memory. And there, there's some like, I think he uses the word gap somewhere, but there is a gap fill that kind of happens with us to, okay. to I guess, comfort ourselves, to make ourselves feel more comfortable. I know it's entering more psychology than I can remember, but I do remember uh, Professor Dowd, thanks Teach, that he <laughs> kind of taught us about this in, in the psychology class, that we absolutely gap filled our memories. So I have to think of and wonder with a story like this that obviously has been influenced by a dream been influenced by drugs and influenced by the psychology that you just spoke about, which stanzas can we believe and which are those gap fillers? And does that matter? As is my question, because I struggled with the poem overall, trying to pull that meaning out and analyze it because that's what my brain does every time. Yeah. Well, the story gets even more interesting, right? Because let's think about it this way. You 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 have writers that write something down and you have those that just plow through it. You know, we're going to come back. We're going to hit it on that second draft, right? And you have some that just like really try to fine tune and craft it as they write it. And they might come back and tweak a few things, but you always have that revisiting over time. Well, what happened between 1797 and when this actually got published? Because... I guess uh, Coleridge, he never wrote down the date for when he actually wrote this. And scholars debate this in terms of like, did he really write it in 1797? Well, most of them agree it was around then because in terms of like the uh, way he expressed himself in letters, when he would actually acknowledge it and not acknowledge it because he didn't write about it very often in letters. Like he would only reveal it to specific close friends, if you will, like private readings. And uh, that that's one element. But what, now let's start to talk about that gap fill, right? Because how much changed over time, even though we do have access to the original manuscript, it's on display in like, like some British library or museum, I think, somewhere. But if you think about it, you know, he claims, oh, I, I was reading this book. But the book spelled Kublai Khan with like C's different than how he wrote Kublai Khan. The book was also possibly a thousand pages, which would be very unwieldy to be sitting out and have carried out into this field, to have just been on opium 
and then suddenly read this line and start writing this this poem this poem essentially as well and it's also questionable of um okay why did you misquote the part of the book where it actually has more in common with Marco Polo's letters of Xanadu than it did the book that you claim that you're quoting. There's a lot of inconsistencies where some gap fills appear to have happened with this story. So how much of the story really was just written down on a whim uh, versus did he craft and we only have access to maybe the final manuscript, the one that finally that was like, oh yeah, this is my man, my manuscript from 1797. It, it, it's, it becomes a little bit more controversial of what is the true source of what did Samuel Taylor Coolidge really see in his dream? I can't remember my best dream ever from a month ago, let alone if it's been years, even if it's the most profound, best dream you've ever had in your entire life. That memory is going to fade eventually. Our brains just don't work that way. Again, but does it all matter? Because there is a piece of literature here that I can read and I can analyze and can, I can try to pull information out of. I just struggled to do that because I had all this excess baggage. And I think that if I hadn't known that, maybe it would have been easier. And I feel like that's something of like, I wish I could undo sometimes. And you, you've been such a service to me of telling me, hey, don't read this first, or let's have this discussion before you read this, because that allows you to dive deeper into it. And I think this is a poem of you just need to go in blind and just read it without any pre preconceived notions of what is truly there. Well, it's going to break your brain too, right? Like when we talk about building this, this sunny palace, this, this beautiful palace, perfect palace, but it's in really long caves, but but we clear out the land and, and there's gardens in there. I don't, I don't know many gardens that grow in caves, really. I don't know many sunny pleasure domes in caves. There's there's this juxtaposition of like impossibility, even in the language, right? When he says like the the two fives of fertile ground and and we could talk all day about the the alliteration the milk of paradise. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and, and yeah, obviously there's there's ton to discuss there and how you want to approach literature, right? Do you want to talk about the beauty of the language and the assonance and the consonants and that's not really where you, where you and I get the most amount of pleasure. Maybe that's part of why romanticism is as high on our list as it is for others. We we like to like talk about the meaning, the purpose. So, okay. Why would Coleridge make these impossibilities? you know, the gardens in the dark caves, but it's a sunny palace in that dark cave. Like it can't be sunny and dark. Which one is it? Right. And we learn in the, the second stanza and the third stanza, they're ice caves. How can it be cold, but like hot at the same time too? Like this is something that can't happen. Why would he specifically make such a juxtaposition of the perfect world? Hmm. We've talked a lot about man versus nature, man coexisting with nature. And I feel like, this might have been his attempt at saying that man can control or tame nature in some regards, and that you can have a, a square circle, <laughs> so to speak, and that uh, we can capture and, and control our environments. Okay, okay. Let's go back to your history days, as you used to teach history, right? Why did Genghis Khan conquer? The trade routes to control the trade routes because that was where the power lied. Mm -hmm. And what was the vision that made him believe that? Like what 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 
ordained him to, to, to go on these conquests? Why control these routes? Uh, he felt that, you know, he was destined to do it and that that was something he wanted to do for his family and his culture express, you know, and spread his, you know, belief of how the world should operate. I mean, are you aware that there are Mongolian texts that say that Genghis Khan thought he was ordered by the heavens to rule Earth? Like, he believed it was his destiny to conquer and build, like, almost like this perfect environment. I think that all conquerors kind of believe that. Mm-hmm. On some <laughs> level, that, right? <laughs> yeah, on some level, I think that, uh, you know, the narcissism gets to him to at some point of that, you know, God destined me to do this. So I, I guess I could see that as a little bit of the in the poem as well. Now we've also talked about how obviously Kublai Khan's a real person. Was it, it was is it the great grandson, the grandson of, of Genghis Khan, a descendant of Genghis Khan? Great grandson, yeah. Okay, so you know he's trying to create his perfect world. He, he he hears his ancestors tell him that war's coming. Right. Well, what's Coolidge's point of life? Right. We've we've talked before about how literature is a way to immortalize yourself. Right. The idea being, if I create this perfect book, this create this perfect narrative, it'll be passed down. And therefore, I will be in the consciousness of human beings for, for decades, for centuries. Right. What better way to continue living on your isness, your essence of yourself, than creating the perfect thing to let you live on in the legacy of other people? Whether you're doing it through the conquering, like Genghis Khan thought was right, through the building of the perfect city like like Kublai Khan, or whether you're like Samuel Taylor Coolidge here, where you think that your way of living on and, and making the legacy for yourself for future generations is through poetry. In some ways, we're all kind of driven to create this perfect reality, even if it is an impossibility in the way that this this poem has come across. And I do want to correct myself real quick. Uh, it's his grandson. But yeah, I, I feel like the poem... You, you you get through the, all the poem and you're kind of in this fever dream with Coolidge and then you get to the end and like there's a juxtaposition on top of juxtaposition of it shifts, right? And you get the realism where it starts to make a little bit more coherent sense and you realize that there's been a change in a tone and it almost feels like a different author as you get to the end of the poem. Really? I, uh, I, I was with you with when you said the word juxtaposition, right? Because... <laughs> In the beginning, it's all beautiful, we're crafting, we're creating, and then the second word, they talk about the satanic howls of this woman, and we learn about the the dulcimer and the Abyssinian woman who played it, like, oh, I had this I have this recollection of her. If I could just recreate that perfect sound for my perfect city, um, to me, and there's like that, that geyser that's like spitting stones out. First of all, why do I want a geyser spitting stones out? My perfect city, that seems <laughs> hot. Right, juxtaposition, right? But... But to me, it was, it continued this absurdity throughout the whole poem. And even the way the tone shift matches the way the, the elements of the story are absolutely absurd as well. That to me, the, the way the poem ended was, was very abrupt, right? Like, like it is an incomplete poem. Like we admit that, like he tells us it's an incomplete poem. And I, and I wonder how much of that is that idea too of you, you, he couldn't create perfection, like he failed to to immortalize this perfect poem for himself, even though people have debated and found fascination, whether it be in the wordplay or the meaning or, or what is this perfect world? and Why do we create this perfect world? Like there, there's so many different ways to kind of attack this one. 
And I feel like that's something that we've talked a lot about before, maybe more off camera than than on of, is there ever a perfect ending to a story? Is there ever a perfect ending to a, a book, a poem, a movie, a show? Because ultimately, you're probably going to disappoint someone, right? So had Coolridge sat down and he had the final stanza and he's like, this isn't going to work. He goes, 99% of people may love it, but I want 100%. I want everybody to be content with this. And he torched it. He threw it away. He burnt it. Uh, He buried it. And so leaving us wanting, having that open-ended story like so many authors do, letting us finish it is sometimes the greatest gift they can give to the story as leaving it open-ended leaving it incomplete. And I feel like that's what he's done here as well, of that coherent, incoherent ramblings throughout, is if you had a coherent ending, it would break the magic of the poem itself. And even though I struggled with it, I really did, uh, and, and our, our discussion has helped, I feel like that's something of why people keep going back to this poem over and over, you know, so many years later. It's a hard poem. Right? There's there's no two ifs, ands, or buts about it. The the imagery is intense. The 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 way reality doesn't exactly fit perfectly is intense. It's it's hard to absorb, I think, as a reader. And some people, I think, like that feeling, you know. And the, the, there's just so much of Coleridge just injected into it because if you, I, I think, I, I got to look up the dates. But there's like at one point in his life, I think it was when he was younger. He tried, he wanted to create or tried to create this like utopian society. Right, like pantasocracy or I don't know, look it up in some, <laughs> some history book on Coolidge, but, but there's, <laughs> there's an element of him wanting to reach perfection, this utopian society, this perfect poem, this Xanadu, which can have sunny pleasure domes in icy caves, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I always think about and come back to the idea of, we, we talked about a lot of different authors over the years and we've come to a few of our favorites that always seem to have used uh, mind-altering stimulants. And is that something that is consistent of why authors write the way that they do? And is it their true word uh, that we're really getting? And I feel like with Coolridge, he wanted something perfect, and he couldn't have it, so he teased us with it in this poem. Have you ever read his The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? Ooh, that sounds very familiar. I I might have in high school or college. There's a there's an Iron Maiden song that even like paid homage to it. <laughs> uh, I definitely didn't I was, listen to that. I definitely didn't listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this. Um, this poem is so different from the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Like the the way that they come off the, with the style. Even as someone that is using, you know, these altering substances to write, it's clear that Kubla Khan is in just a different sport than a lot of his other writings have been. Maybe maybe that's something I'll schedule for us to do, but it'll be interesting to kind of compare and contrast to, to kind of what you just brought up, because you can see the the artistry and the tone, the register, the style, it's completely different. Let, let, I'll schedule that, tell you what, playlist down below <laughs> to follow along as, as we plan on doing that one here in the near future to catch up on that one. Uh, let us know what you enjoyed about this poem. 
obviously we could go all night about this. There's a ton to talk about here, but I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, uh, leave us a little picture of a a palace about that down below to let YouTube know that you enjoyed it. My name is Benuna. Thank you for spending time with us today. Peace.